Reformation Fellowship provides support and fellowship to all who would stand for the Reformation of Christ's Church worldwide. We long to see the church revitalized by the gospel and seek to encourage all who share that vision. We gather together for gospel-hearted fellowship around gospel-minded theology. We are a ministry of union. Welcome back, friends. My name is Justin Schell, and I want to welcome you to this new episode of Reformation Fellowship Podcast. Let me welcome you with this word from Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our prayer for those of you who have joined us is exactly that. Joy in the Lord, pleasure in Jesus, fullness in God. Or as we say around here, we, want, uh, we, we pray that more and more you would delight in God, grow in Christ, serve the church, and bless the world. I want to make you aware of our website, reffellowship.org, R-E-F-fellowship.org. That's where you can find out more about what we are all about here at the Reformation Fellowship, and we can keep you updated on news about events, resources, the gatherings, etc. This is the last episode in a three-part conversation about God's Word. We spoke in the first part about the biblical languages and their use for God's people. Then last episode, we looked at the doctrine of God and hermeneutics and, and the role those things play in word ministry in the church. This time, we're looking at biblical theology, and I'm so excited about this conversation for a couple of reasons. First, it's been an area of, of interest and focus for me, but even more exciting is that we get to welcome back our two guests for one more conversation. Uh, we have Stephen Moore, lecturer in Hebrew and Old Testament at Union School of Theology, and Stephen Jenkins, lecturer in Greek and Biblical Studies, also for Union. Welcome back. We, um, we've made it through two episodes together. One more to go. Are you feeling, you feeling strengthened and ready? Looking forward to it. Great to be with you, Justin. We're so excited. I mean, it was a week ago, wasn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you again for joining the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. As I often like to do, I, I want to start with definition. Uh, what is biblical theology? Uh, help us understand what it is. How, how might it differ from, say, exegesis or, or from systematics? Of course. I mean, uh, one easy thing to clear up is that we, we don't mean theology, which is biblical, as opposed to theology, which is unbiblical and unsound. Um, what, what, what we normally mean when we say biblical theology is that where systematics wants to look at the whole Bible and answer one question... Uh, you know, who is God? Tell me everything the Bible says uh, from every relevant passage. Whereas exegesis can be uh, can be sometimes mispresented as though it were, I only care about this passage, by the way, in its context. Biblical theology is a way of saying the whole Bible is your context every time. Uh, and, and the reason we're able to make that declaration is that we stand on the conviction um, about the Bible. Who is God? There is one God. He has not changed. 
-hmm. that the second person of the Trinity has added to his nature a human nature like ours in every way except without sin, but he has not become any different kind of God. Uh, we're dealing with the same God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and it is, it is one book, it is one story, it is one plan for the, the creation and redemption of the world and of mankind. So that is, what, that is why we can do biblical theology. Uh, and it, it, is a, it is a way of saying, whichever one part of the Bible interests me at the moment, where's my map? Where's my compass? Wh which way am I going? Am I in a place where we're waiting for the Christ? Are we still waiting for King David to appear? Has, has Abraham had any children yet? Yeah. But, but we know the movie. We know the ending and the beginning. And, you know, you walk in on the family who are watching a DVD. And um, if you know the film, you spot the scene, you know what you've missed, you know where you're going. It's, it, it's having that nose about you. Mm. Now, it's something which some listeners may think is a bit modern because um, certainly the way that I think here in, in the UK, many churches, we've been blessed um, recently by, I say recently, you know, latter half of the 20th century, by folks coming in and saying, why don't you start doing some biblical theology? And, and it feels like a new thing, but it's, it's as old as the hills. Uh, the, the Psalms do biblical theology on the Old Testament. Mm. Uh, in the last hundred years or so, we found one of those lost books. Um, you know, ancient books you know exist, but you haven't got any copies. Irenaeus on the apostolic preaching, if you took the cover off and gave it to somebody, they would say, okay, this has been written by someone like Graham Goldsworthy because it is obviously a book of, of biblical theology. Right, yeah. And so uh, at its best, um, biblical theology is a way of saying, how does every detail, every syllable matter and contribute to the Christ? who speaks this word and about whom it is. Hmm. Hmm. That's right. So you, you mentioned the, you know, the map or the compass. Suddenly you're, you're orientated in a way mm -hmm. through biblical theology as to where you are in the, the development of scripture. So this, this idea that there is an organic development within scripture um, and being able to locate yourself or orientate ourselves within that, um, that narrative, that story, that development. Um, is then very important for the, the question of interpretation. Um, so that there's, there's something that can be, that's characteristic about this um, historical epoch of, of, of Revelation. So in the, you know, Gerhardus Vos, who's um, in many ways, the, you know, the major modern proponent after the post-war era who triggers the, this movement in biblical theology is very strong on the historical aspect. So that the historical aspect of, of special revelation is, is what we're, uh, what we're thinking about when we, uh, we try and trace out the development of the story of scripture. Mm. You mentioned Gerhard as well. Is he your friend at all, Stephen? It's going to be a severe edit. I have to go on here. He's making work for you here. <laughs> I'm going to leave this in. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah, trying, to, I'm trying to set the tone of light banter here. <laughs> our, our listeners must know that we laugh and uh, have a good time. Well, thanks for that. That, that is a helpful introduction to biblical theology for us. Let's say I've got my mind wrapped around what it is, but help me try to understand a little more about why it's important. Is, is this just something for scholars to do? Is this um, 
Uh, is this something that, that should be something that's important for the local church? For instance, maybe, um, maybe start with preaching is how might biblical theology inform preaching within the church? Well, say in a, in a church context, you're spending lots of time in an Old Testament book or in a, uh, in a book where exile dominates. So the, the, the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah into Babylon in and, and 586 BC, it's a big historical moment. And the congregation may have more or less uh, knowledge and understanding that that's a, a big historical moment. But what biblical theology allows us to, to think about is approach the question then theologically or that historical moment theologically. So rather than simply saying it was the historical event of a whole group of people being deported um, from west to east over to Babylon, how are we to understand it theologically? And this is where Stefan mentioned that actually, of course, within the scriptures themselves, we're being taught all the time to do biblical theology. We want to ask, how do the biblical writers reflect theologically on that event of exile? So to take one example, uh, you know, the prophet Jeremiah spends lots of airtime um, framing and describing the events of exile in such a way to really encourage um, and feed the faith of, of those who are facing exile on the, on the threshold of going to Babylon and giving hope um, for what's going to follow exile. And it's framed um, by the Lord through Jeremiah in terms of creation out of nothing. Mm. And so we discover that actually the story of, of exile, that historical event, isn't just some brute historical event that's there that we maybe need to know just so we, where we know so we know where we are in the timeline, but actually it's, it's saying that for God to bring his people back from exile, for God to restore the fortunes of Israel, for God to keep uh, his promises that he's made um, to Abraham, it's going to mean um, bringing something out of nothing. It's going to mean doing the kind of thing mm -hmm. um, he did mm -hmm. at the very beginning of creation. It's mm -hmm. going to mean um, something which we will discover is, is a resurrection uh, effectively. So, uh, without biblical theology, then we we don't have the theological way to to understand and our churches and our congregations to understand and frame and the the different historical points on the timeline. Yeah, so I, I, someone could hear that and think this is just a another of a long list of of occurrences in the Old Testament and, and miss the point that this is actually pointing to new creation. This is pointing to a redemption. This is a this is a big deal. <laughs> this is more important than uh, just cataloging dates. Who is this pointing to? What is this pointing to? So that's maybe preaching, for example. We we can see okay, it can help us situate uh, our conversation, our our sermon series in the bigger picture of what God's doing. I, I think a, a question up on the relationship of the Old Testament with the New Testament. I hear from Christians every so often that when they read the Bible, it, it almost seems like two books. Uh, there's a, a perceived discontinuity um, that, that can be a stumbling block sometimes. Let's say I'm, I'm a pastor. I've, I've got some folks in my body with questions around this or, or they're, they're struggling to see maybe the importance of the Old Testament still in the life of the believer, um, which could be a whole conversation itself. But help us help us think through how does biblical... Theology help us understand the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament better. Um, does it offer help for that? 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a brilliant question, and, and I think if we if we want to think back a little bit to what we were talking last week about the relationship between the church and the academy, I think the fact that we have to ask the question is evidence of how poorly the Old Testament academy has served the church. So for too long, the world of Old Testament has operated in, in the on the assumption that this is a religious text to do with this people in Israel. And that is all it is. Um, and my colleagues across the way in the New Testament department are doing something else entirely. And e even in the evangelical world, we're playing catch up. So somebody publishes a commentary on the New Testament use of the old, and it is written entirely by New Testament scholars because they're the ones who thought about it. And the assumption is um, scholars of Habakkuk have got nothing to say about how the New Testament picks up on Habakkuk, which is, which is a scandal, right? Um, I mean, the good news is that is not um, where evangelicals are at now. We, we're living downstream of some serious giants whose work, whose work God has blessed. Men, like, men in the UK like Gordon Wenham, who, when you think about the state of the academy here, were able to, to enter it and be highly respected. And uh, I know we've got a, a quota on name dropping, so we're not going to do any more of that. But, um, but, but, but the things are going in the right direction. And you're right, that, that biblical theology... Uh, it is the, the thing that, that is missing, the thing that was keeping the Testaments apart. And I would want to say that without it, neither the New Testament nor the Old Testament makes sense. Mm. My, my watchword for my students is to say, we haven't finished understanding the Old Testament until we stop being surprised by what the New Testament does with it. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, suddenly, don't you know that they were all baptized into Moses? And we go, What? Now, as long as we're doing that, we, we haven't, because Paul isn't saying, I'm addressing you who have attended my advanced hermeneutics seminar, mm. right? I'm addressing all of you in Corinth, and I'm just taking it as read that you know that all who passed through the sea were baptized into Moses, and that you know what I mean. I take it as read that you know that you should pay your pastor because you don't muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. Mm. Matthew takes it that we get the joke when he says um, that out of Egypt I have called my son, when the son of God has to flee Israel and go to physical Egypt. He just assumes that we know the, the story that he's referring to and that he knows how um, that, is, that is cashed out. So I think the way it can help us is um, partly for um, young Christians, let's early on get a basic biblical theology in there. Let's make sure we know the plot. Let's make sure we know the basic story. And then let's make sure that we don't um, put too much weight on that plot. Now, here's what I mean. Um, if I tell you the 10 things that I think are important, I'm leaving out almost everything. And this young Christian is in danger of reading the whole Bible through the lens of those 10 things. And I'd better have picked them right. And of course I haven't, because otherwise God would have picked them for me. So, so I think it's helping people see that this is your basic orientation, sit loose to it, be ready to ditch it, but it's a temporary help as you read your way through. Now what I'm going to do in my preaching is I'm going to preach every passage as a Christian passage. I'm not going to constantly apologize and defend it. I'm not going to constantly teach you about this as though it needed a technique. I'm just going to take it as read that Deuteronomy is a Christian book. And I'm going to address the church 
by preaching Deuteronomy and you're going to catch from me rather than learn from me an attitude of how do I this side of the resurrection and ascension read Deuteronomy 6, read Deuteronomy 7, read Deuteronomy 8. But it's not going to be by giving seminars about biblical theology. It's going to be by just doing it every time we open our Bibles. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that really helps us, I think, transition to our next question on, on this topic of typology. It often comes up when, when we talk about biblical theology. Um, for the, in, in case any of our listeners may not know what it is, could, could, we, could you tell us what is typology and how might it help us with that question of Old and New Testament, um, as well as how might that serve the pastor and his people? Sure. So if you imagine um, when Herr Gutenberg invents his um, printing press, uh, you have this concept of a type. So you typeset print in a book. You have a typeface is another word for font. So you've got this metal shape and you're going to put ink on it. And when you press it down, it's going to leave an impression. And you take the piece of paper away, put another piece of paper in, bring the ink down, another impression. So the idea of a type is that there is something which all of these impressions are pointing to. Um, and this is all around us. This is not a, this is not a biblical light. I'm sorry, of course it's a biblical idea. I mean, it, it fills the world. So when you watch Shrek and, and you see whoever it is do the splits in midair and, the, and time freezes and the camera swirls around them, you're thinking the matrix. I know where you got that from. When you see the character, you know, rise up at a wedding up into the air and fail to be transformed from monster to princess, but stay as monster, you're thinking, oh, isn't this the end of a different Disney movie that's just gone wrong here? Um, and, and on it goes. Um, so th this fills literature, it, it fills even our pop culture. Uh, and in the Bible, it is one of these ways of saying the whole Christ, that is to say the head Jesus and the body the church, is in view on every page. And so when I see Abraham nearly offer up Isaac and then a substitute comes in, I'm thinking, do you know if this were a one-off, I'd make nothing of it, but look how often these substitutions come up. I'm expecting some sort of substitution, right? Mm. Look how often God's people are in trouble and the way that they are saved is through the judgment on their enemies Oh, and look, a load of their enemies repent and join them. And if it happened once, you'd think nothing of it. But when it happens once and again and again, and then the exile, how does the exile end? You know, um, something about what Jesus is going to do is being made ready for you. Mm -hmm. So that when you've seen the end of the film, actually you recognize it clearly. But even before seeing the end, it, it's shaping you to see certain expectations. It's preparing you to recognize the Christ, the Savior, when, when he does come. So um, in, in the older books, what we now call typology was called allegory. What we now call allegory is something different. So it, it's easy to get confused here. But the, the way that um, early church writers thought about this was to say, every text has got a plain, literal sense. So when I read about Jerusalem, I'm thinking about a place on a map that I can put a, put a pin in. But I also know that Jerusalem foreshadows something the New Testament in Galatians calls the Jerusalem above. 
So there is something that it's pointing to, some, some type. Now that then becomes detached from the literal sense. So you end up with a parable, and without asking what does the parable actually seem to want to mean, you just import a whole load of meaning, and we call that allegorizing. And it's where you try to edify the people by reading into the passage stuff you already know is true, but it's got very little to do with the passage. That's not typology. T typology is where the genuine meaning of the text, when you recognize that that meaning is very similar to another text and another text and another event and another event, these are those bits of paper that are the impressions of the same typeface that has come crashing down onto it. And, and that typeface is Jesus. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really helpful for us understanding how we see ourselves in relation to Christ so that we, uh, we um, benefit from and come under Christ's work. And therefore, when we understand that there's a, uh, there's an historical shape or type that's already been sketched out for us in countless ways um, in scripture and pointing us to Christ, then that means that as we read those types, um, we, we're encountering um, a shape, a type of Christ. And so we, I think one thing that's important for us is helping us understand uh, that uh, these, these types are often public persons. In other words, that there are people and offices that we that we meet uh, in scripture which are standing for more than just the individual and so the interests of God's people uh, the interests of the salvation of God's people um, uh, find their, their their story within that person and that person's career and the shape of that person's career mm. and so it means when we when we read of the, uh, the, the the shape in which the patriarch Joseph's career Text uh, as he goes down into mm. Egypt, as he goes down into prison, um, as he comes up and ascends eventually to um, what's tantamount to being co-regent in, in Egypt. Uh, the the shape of his career um, points us to Christ, and we feed on Christ as we uh, as we see that shape. And mm. you know that that that's saying no more than. And, you know, then Stephen in his defense speech speaks about uh, yeah. how Joseph was raised up among his, one from among his brothers. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's what it seems like the writer to the Hebrews does for us, doesn't he? That um, you see this office of the high priest, you see this offering of the lamb, you see this, this temple, this holy space, you see, and, and that's all a model on earth of the reality that is, yeah. that is Christ. That is the heavenly throne room, the 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 true holy of holies. And, and and he's trying to say, look, Jesus is better than all of those things. They're all pointing to Jesus. Uh, enjoy, feast on, trust in. Don't turn back. Don't turn away. Follow Christ. Enjoy Christ. It's well, beautiful. Right. But and they and they also then allow you to take. The detail in the Old Testament stories, which, which are so detailed, where you might think, this is about some people have nothing to do with me. And it makes you realize, no, this is about the people of the high priest. And it makes the connection of what is the high priest that Hebrews talks about doing. Because when you follow through one thread of typology in the Old Testament, you will see that the representative nature of the high priest is that his death is effectual for all. So in Leviticus 4, the sacrifice you have to pay 
um, for sin depends on your status in the community. But if the whole people of Israel sin, they offer the same sacrifice as if only the high priest sins. You're being taught that there's an equivalence between the atonement for the high priest's sin and the whole people. You mm. learn in numbers that as many people as there are in cities of refuge all over Israel, when the one high priest dies, they all go free. Now that mm. allows you to, when you're preaching Hebrews, say to people, don't miss the point. This is not a one-for-one -one swap. This is not that Jesus vacated one slot in heaven for one of you. This was not merely a substitutionary death. It was a representative substitutionary death. The mm. head for the body, the head for the whole people, just as the high priest did in the old covenant. Mm. And that is why all of you who trust in Christ have been atoned for. And that is the point of Hebrews. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, let's, let's take this then, this idea of biblical theology. And, and I want to pull in the last episode's um, topic of the doctrine of scripture and hermeneutics. It seems that to be able to do biblical theology, you kind of have to believe certain things about the scripture and about how, how we're meant to understand it. Help us understand um, that relationship. I think that's absolutely right, that our doctrine of scripture is going to radically affect just the, the whole enterprise of biblical theology. So um, we're, we're thinking naturally in biblical theology about the organic, script, the organic structure of all of scripture. And so it's a whole Bible approach by definition. Well, that presupposes a certain doctrine of scripture. We've talked about typology. So an historical shape of events, events, historical events have a certain shape and they bear correspondence with other events or persons or offices that have a similar shape, similar type in a different part of the canon. But to connect those two things, to make typology a, a valid thing and to, to allow you to, uh, to connect with those two events presupposes that this is a double authored book, mm. that this is a divinely inspired canon so that for all we want to affirm heartily the historical grammatical approach to the interpretation of scripture, which, which we certainly do want to do, we don't want to do it in such a way that it excludes the ability for God by his spirit to uh, inspire all sorts of connections uh, in scripture as a canon. Uh, and, so, and so I think doctrine of scripture um, really does dictate what mm. biblical theology is, what it can be, and what will be allowed within that. And so, you know, I think it's, it's these are mutually reinforcing, but, but um, also dependent. Uh, mm. Um, disciplines mm -hmm. yeah well that's it's just so so good so important to to think about these things and go deeper with them um, before we wrap up here uh, on this conversation i, I do want to just say to you stefan and Stephen, thank you again for for being with us uh, we want to get some recommendations from you in a moment but um want to thank you brothers for ministering to us in these episodes it's been for me, a rich blessing, and I, and I know for our listeners as well. And so um, I just want to say, Lord, bless your research, your writing, your teaching there at Union, and with the Lord calls all that you do to bear fruit that lasts. Um, so thank you for, for joining us. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you.
Yeah, thank, thank you very much for, for releasing us and finally letting us go, Justin. It's, it's very kind of, I mean, it's been great being here and a tremendous time. Well, I wanted to say that before getting to the recommendations, so that way um, people don't jump off. And uh, so they're still here. Listeners, you're still here, I think, and uh, would love to hear. So, let's say I'm, I'm completely new to this idea of biblical theology, maybe a recommendation or two, or I'm starting to kind of know my way around. What, are, what, are, what would you say are some great resources to, uh, to go deeper? Probably almost the best approach would be to go to a book that that models public, biblical theology really well. So rather than describes, again, the discipline, if, if um, even if people are unfamiliar with what biblical theology is, they're going to be most encouraged and edified, I think, by reading a good example of it. And mm. I mean, there's lots um, of, of examples, also recent examples. Stefan's already mentioned, actually, down the, down the ages, there's plenty of good examples of, of biblical theology. But one recent example that's, um, I think, a very good one is um, Gregory Beale's um, The Temple and the Church's Mission, and tracing that that theme of of the temple and, and God's presence, Him dwelling with His people, and how that's something that uh, really is traced and developed from from Genesis to Revelation. So I'd I'd hardly recommend that. Mm. Yeah, I think I'd echo the recommendation not to read about biblical theology, but read it in action. Mm. Uh, similarly, in that same series, actually, as Beale, Michael Morales, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, uh, anything in future Michael Morales writes, uh, buy it, read it. Mm. Alec Matier, I think particularly if you're looking for something very light and accessible and small, I mean, he's done any number of, you know, how to love the Old Testament, look to the rock um, books. They're all absolute gold dust. Mm. Palmer Robertson, his series, The Christ Of, um, again, well worth reading. That would be a little, that would be a little more heavy, uh, perhaps seminary level. Uh, but um, but but well worth the, the rewards if you get into it. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And again, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stefan, for being with us. To our listeners, thank you for joining us and the Reformation Fellowship. We would love to stay in touch with you. The best way to do that would be to head over to reffellowship.org. That is R-E-F-fellowship.org. Sign up for our newsletter. We'll be able to keep you updated on upcoming events, upcoming resources, upcoming gatherings, etc. Thank you again for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. God bless.